You're listening to Payments Innovation, a podcast dedicated to helping business leaders navigate today's global digital economy. Looking to learn about the latest innovations within fintech and payments? You've come to the right place. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Payments Innovation Podcast. This is your host, Brady Burkett. Today, I'm joined by Matt Drudzinski, CEO and founder of Pilot. Welcome to the show, Matt. Hey, Brady. It's great to be on. So Pilot is a payroll benefits and compliance for remote team platform. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about Pilot, what the platform does, and about the clients you work with? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, if you think about this, every company has this need of getting people paid, you know, putting them on payroll. And historically, the tools to do that were very localized, right? So if you are a US-based company, you might be using something like Gusto, Rippling, ADP, you know, lots of different tools. And every single country that you would be in would have a different tool. So like if you're in the UK, you might be using Zero for payroll, for example. What Pilot really does is gives you a, a single tool that you can use to pay your entire remote team, especially international. So it makes it really easy for you as a company to hire and pay people um, outside of the US. So that's that's what the platform does. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure it's an exciting time to be in the space working on the, the future of work, you know, the future of, of remote work, working cross borders. Before we get into all that, Matt, can you give our listeners a little bit of a background about you and what led you to to found Pilot? Yeah, for sure. So I've I've always had a fairly international background and uh, an upbringing. I was originally born in Poland, but spent a bunch of time with the sort of tech ecosystem in Germany. I've lived in the UK for a decade. I went to university there, and now I'm in in the US um, and have been for the past three or four years now. And I always happen to have, because of that, because of sort of moving around, I've always happened to have more friends outside of the country that I lived than than in, you know, uh, always maintain those, those relationships with folks that I met along the way. So when I, when I graduated college, I, I sort of started connecting people, you know, with, within that network. So folks that I knew in, in the UK with, with companies that I was working with in the US and I was trying to facilitate those connections. And it sort of occurred to me that there's a lot of hurdles when it comes to these companies actually wanting to hire people in another country. You know, it's, it's, it's not that easy. You sort of end up I mean, it, it should be, you know, but it's not, you know, like you end up running into infrastructure problems uh, a lot of the time. And that, that really sort of was what inspired us to uh, to start Pilot is, is to help create a more open worldwide job market. And, and you know, if you have a great, you know, someone with amazing talent and they happen to be in um, in Colombia and your company is in, in the US, you should be able to engage them if they're the best candidate for the role that that you're looking to hire for, it, it's sort of, um, because of my background always struck me as, as very unfair how much of a role at the specific plot of land or the geographical coordinates of where you happen to be born, how much of an impact that has on your success in life and the opportunities that are, that are afforded to you. And uh, we sort of set out to, to change that. Yeah, it's funny how the breakthrough in communication technology and information technology can let folks get access to to products and services and ideas, 
but still working for a company is is so complicated. So that's where Pilot comes in. And you guys have have been active for a, a few years now. Yeah. I guess can, can you talk about you know where you guys are operating and and what that growth has been like. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the primary market for us is the US. We work with US-based uh, companies, but in terms of, but we support their workers anywhere in the world, right? So we're in 130 plus countries for employment, like sort of W-2 equivalent, uh, like full-time employee. We support contractors in probably 240 countries and uh I mean, last year we've, we've sort of grown the number of workers that are getting paid on our platform tenfold, right? So it's been it's been a pretty busy busy year for us, <laughs> as, I'm, as I'm sure it has been for a lot of uh, a lot of folks in, in our space as well. Yeah, it's been an exciting space, and and you just mentioned a distinction, and I wanna I wanna ask you about it so you can clarify for our listeners the difference between contractors and full time employees. I mean, there are a number of terms. Freelancers gets thrown around a lot. Contractors. Can you kind of give a background of these different types of employment? And then I think it would also be great, you know, if you could fold those definitions into how you see work evolving. Because to set the stage, I think in the current day, given the technology we have, given the services we're able to provide, full-time employees are restricted to the location where the, the home office is and contractors, there's a bit more complexity, but you can kind of have a contractor located elsewhere. How, how do you see these roles, if you could define them, and then how do you see them changing to create the future of work? Yeah, yeah for sure. It's going to be, it's going to take a while to unpack all of that. It's a pretty big, uh, pretty big topic, but, but I think that the first thing that I'll, that I'll mention kind of before I dig into the sort of defining the terms is the sort of the term freelancers is one that we don't like. It has a more specific meaning than like employee versus independent contractor. So I usually like to clarify that one sort of out at the beginning, at least to me and and from sort of what we've seen other companies, when they think of freelancers, they mean of sort of, they they, they think of, of free agents, people that generally work with more than one company at the time. Right. And that's kind of what the, the sort of the, the freelancer means, at least at least in my mind. Whereas an independent contract is more of a versus an employee is more of a legal distinction. It doesn't always imply that the independent contractor works for multiple companies at the time. It does carry a certain level of flexibility and independence that, that obviously an employee doesn't have. But from a lot of the, the folks that, that, that we work with, a lot of the companies that we work with, they, they genuinely feel that the independent contractors that they work with are a part of the, of the team. You know, it's a sort of a different way to, to legally employ them. And, and there's sort of good reasons for that. But generally speaking, that line ends up getting blurred a lot more than it does with, with sort of actual freelancer positions, right? So then when you when you start looking at, at this question of, you know, independent employee versus contractor, it's a very country and, and location specific distinction, right? So every country has their own laws around 
worker classification and whether a specific person working for you can be considered an employee of the, whether they can be considered a contractor. So within the US, the terms that are sort of thrown around is usually W-2 versus 1099. Those are the sort of the specific forms that are used when engaging employees. That would be the, sort of the W-2 and uh, contractors, which would be uh, 1099. So that they're usually used to sort of clarify those terms as the sort of short codes for, for, for these two classes of, of, of team members. Some countries don't have a distinction, don't have that distinction, or they don't have independent contractors at all. Like it's just not an option that the legal system in that country affords. And then you have countries that are sort of in between and it's a spectrum, right? Like some countries are stricter around who can be a contractor, who can be an employee. So like within the US and especially in California, you have AB5, you have a lot of restrictions that mean that if someone you know, doesn't meet certain criteria, they have to be considered an employee, right? Other jurisdictions have much more relaxed, uh, much more, take a much more relaxed approach to this and generally consider uh, contracting to be a form of entrepreneurship that is encouraged as opposed to discouraged, right? So when companies sort of think about this, the sort of independent contractor versus employee route internationally, they do have to take into account those differences between different countries and the trade-offs that are involved in hiring someone as an employee versus a contractor and, and sort of what comes with that. Yeah. And and you guys are are helping them do both. I guess what it comes down to is you guys are are providing the global infrastructure where your clients have that flexibility to understand the difference between paying a contractor and, and hiring an employee and what the trade-offs are. So I guess digging into that a bit more, can you share what your clients prefer? Just thinking about what you guys are seeing in your platform, in your client base, can you give us an indication if if the future of work is the freedom of contractor engagements and people want to, as long as they want to work for a company and then move on to the next one? Is it um, kind of these full-time employment contracts uh, where you guys are helping them set up as as full employees of the company? What, what are you guys seeing? It's a mix. Internationally, it does lean more heavily towards contracting just because that model is a lot more lightweight. And before platforms like ours existed, the only options that companies had when it came to having people as actual employees, uh, the only option that they had was really setting up a local legal entity in that country, standing up payroll, standing up all of the infrastructure themselves. So given that it's a sort of a big capital investment for the company and and, and also a, a sort of an ongoing investment to maintain that legal entity, most folks that wanted to get the benefit of working with people uh, across borders and being able to have access to the global talent pool, they would have opted in for hiring people as contractors. So by the nature of that, because we onboard a lot of companies that are already hiring internationally, a large percentage of the people that they're bringing over are going to be contractors for that reason, because historically that was the model that you had, right? But companies are also getting a lot more sophisticated about how they think about their international workforce, right? They're more getting more sophisticated when thinking about compliance and are able to make these uh, sort of assessments as to, well, maybe in this country, the laws are favorable to having folks hired as, as contractors. So we'll continue doing that. But in other countries, we might 
feel like the risk is too high and we will hire people as, as, as actual full-time employees as opposed to contractors, right? And, and you end up having sort of a mixed workforce that where you make those assessments on an ongoing basis as to what makes sense for you, given where your, where your talent is, right? So I, yeah, I would say, I mean, leaning towards, towards contractors for sure, but, but any sort of HR executive or payroll executive is going to be thinking about making these decisions, you know, should it be an employee, should it be a, a contractor? I'm going to be spending a lot more time thinking about that going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure in the last year or so, you guys have probably seen a, an interesting amount of, of demand from customers out there. I mean, we're talking now in, in April of, of 2021. So about a year into COVID hitting worldwide, Currency Cloud has become a remote first company. In the context of this conversation, what that means is I'm an employee of Currency Cloud US. I can work anywhere in the US. It does not mean I can go work in Mexico. But I'm sure there are a lot of companies out there that have changed their policy to be even more flexible and and reflect that. So I guess, can you talk about some of these companies that you've seen come to pilot in the last year or so? What are the first things that you help them think about? I'm sure they're coming to you as, as knowledgeable leaders in the industry. What are those first steps to to getting started to be able to offer this flexibility to their current employees? And also, as they're doing that, might as well open up and, and source talent globally as well. Yeah, it's always a process for companies to go through through this transition. So when, when COVID was getting started, we all got a, a taste for what remote work is going to look like, but it didn't really require as much of, a, of an infrastructure change in the beginning, right? Because... If your company was 100% based out of San Francisco and now you're all remote and all of your employees stay within San Francisco, then outside of the fact that you don't have office space, it's business as usual when it comes to payroll, right? So, so the first step was really companies realizing that, okay, we have folks that are asking us to want, that want to move out to a different state because if I don't have to come into the office it doesn't make sense for me to be in one of the most expensive real estate markets in the world, right? I can live, you know, wherever I want within the US and still continue doing the same work. So the, the sort of the first thing that companies usually need help with is, is thinking through that. Okay, like how do we actually enable this within the US, right? And then the second step is really, okay, now that we are allowing people to work from anywhere in the US, what difference does it make to me whether someone is in San Diego or in Mexico, right? Like you end up, like it ends up becoming really hard to justify drawing these arbitrary lines, you know? And in the past it was, yes, there was a huge hurdle. There was the infrastructure to be able to support an employee in Mexico just wasn't there, right? But now with, with solutions like Pilot and some of the other players that are out there in the market, it is now accessible, right? For companies to be able to say, look, like you want to live in Mexico? Great. Like go live in Mexico, right? We have a tool that allows us to still keep you on payroll, still feel confident that we're compliant with all of the local labor laws, still be able to get payments out to you. Why should we care? You know, like why is crossing the country line such a a line in the sand that we're not that we won't be willing to cross, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's the first step. It's really kind of like expanding to these to these countries that 
are, you know, reasonably close, usually within the same time zone, right? Because what, what happens next, and I think Currency Cloud, you guys are a great example of that because you're already multinational, right? I mean, you have your team in the UK, you have a US team, mm-hmm. like you're used to working across time zones, right? And I mean, so are we. But a lot of com- for a lot of companies that have been 100% US-based or even 100% like West Coast-based, right? Dealing with time zones is a completely separate issue from the sort of the the payroll infrastructure that you need to support hiring all over the world, right? Mm-hmm. So depending on kind of like where your company was when COVID hit, like if you're already multinational, like, you know, Currency Cloud or a lot of the customers that use us, then it just becomes a question of, okay, like since we already have a presence in Europe, why not hire all over Europe, right? It's just, it's a no-brainer to be able to take this infusion of talent and be able to absorb that within the company as long as we have the tools in place for that, right? So so the conversations that we have with, with our customers that are coming to us will kind of depend on how we're sort of in that, in that evolution process they are, you know? Some of them have already been 100% remote, 100% distributed internationally, and they just need better tools, better infrastructure that gives you more compliance. And that's why they come to us. And then obviously we've had a lot of companies that came to us and said, look, like, I really can't justify just hiring within the US right now. I have this great candidate there in Brazil or Canada or the UK or Ireland. I want to bring them on board. Can you help me make that happen? Right. And we help make that happen. So, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really interesting. So one thing that I just thought of is when we think about kind of the, the global competition to bring corporations to to countries, right? So nations set tax rates to incentivize folks to to bring corporations there. So when you think about that global competition between countries, it's it almost seems like now with remote work and platforms like Pilot, you don't necessarily need to attract a company. You need to attract an employee or you know a number of employees to come and, and work from there. And, and even if they're being paid by a company that's being that's based out of San Francisco, you still bring that benefit to your, your local economy. And I know, Matt, uh, th- this just came off the top of my head. So, you know, just curious if you have thoughts about this question. Do we see in the future countries around the globe competing for talent almost the same way they're competing for employers today? That's a really great question. And uh, this is already happening. You know, like Greece is now offering a 50% income tax cut for people that move to Greece to work remotely from the country, right? <laughs> and they're not the only country doing that. So it's it's definitely started to happen uh, where companies are trying to lure this sort of the new category of, of you know, mobile workers that are, that are usually high earners as well. So it's it's really kind of in there's a huge advantage for the country to bring that talent in and then be able to to attract them. So yeah, we're, we're definitely seeing that. I mean, we're seeing that even within the US, there's certain cities right. and uh, that, that sort of offer certain tax breaks uh, or states that are starting to offer certain tax breaks. And But yeah, internationally as well, Greece is a, is a great example of that. Yeah. I mean, you could go a lot of directions from there and, and at the risk of going down a tangent, it's, it, it almost feels more empowering to be a, a person where you know countries are, are trying to attract you rather than some some arbitrary capital allocators or employers. So 
No, yeah. it's it, it's and then it's, you it, get to benefit from from this personally, right? right? As opposed to your company being able to come in, have lower taxes, not necessarily offer higher wages, yeah. but be able to like you know with with these types of movements that that we see happening, it's like a lot of that value is accruing to the employee, right? Whereas right. with companies incentivizing large corporates, there is obviously value created for employees as well. They definitely create jobs, definitely sort of bring value to the to the local market. But a lot of that value is occurring to the company and we're seeing a shift in that. It, it is becoming much more of a, a worker market, sort of broadly speaking, both in terms of countries needing to do things to to attract like workers moving to that country, but, but also... Uh, you know, obviously companies needing to do things like offer flexible work arrangements and work from home and remote to be able to retain and, and attract talent. So. Yeah. Yeah. And and related to that, to that question, you know, we talked, the example we used was a, a company based in San Francisco. You have employees in the Bay Area. It's the, it's one of the highest places, the most expensive places to live in the world. So the wages are high. What do you right. expect, you know, now if your next engineering hire you can source from Central Europe or um, South Asia. What do you expect in terms of kind of that global that global talent market? Do, are we going to converge on on wages, or, or what do you expect to see there? Yeah, this has already been happening for a while at a slightly smaller scale. So, like, there is a fair amount of of sort of remote first companies that offer the same wages regardless of of where you live, right? So the the sort of the average compensation of a remote employee globally has been converging to towards similar numbers, regardless of where the where the employee is based. And this is also partly driven by you know folks being able to move easily. And then you know as a company, like if someone ends up being in um, living in Berlin and they're moving into the UK, like, do you really want to deal with like adjusting their comp every single time they move? And if they are sort of more nomadic and they end up moving every six months, are you going to be adjusting their compensation every six months? You know, like, Mm -hmm. so the companies that were sort of on the, on the bleeding edge of, of remote have been dealing with these types of challenges for a while. And the type of employee that already has experience working with, with like remote first companies is also used to a certain sort of compensation that is that is more global, right? And mm-hmm. more universal around the globe as opposed to localized to where they happen to be based out of at any particular point in time. I don't think this means like we're moving to a world where there's no disparity between salaries like around the world. Again, different companies have different philosophies and there's plenty of companies out there including I think Facebook that that is you know allowing remote work within the US but will adjust your comp if you move to a lower uh, cost of living area you know so companies have taken different philosophies on this but I from from what I'm seeing we are moving to a world where the delta is less you know like where there's this less disparity between what these workers are able to make yeah. and it's not as you know as tied to like your physical location as it historically has been. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, I guess that's one thing to think about. If you work in HR at a company in the US, you have to think about that policy that you're setting at at the company level, right? What else would these HR departments have to think about when they are looking to to make that first hire abroad? Yeah. So obviously compensation is, is a complicated one 
but relatively sort of simple to understand the, the challenges around that and how to solve them. Like there's no one answer, like whether you should have consistent salaries across the board or have salaries adjusted to the cost of living. But so whichever, but but you can sort of choose on that spectrum where you want to be as a company. But there are other things that that become that you have less control over than salaries. So like pay time off policies, maternity leave policies. Like there's a lot of things that will vary from country to country that if you end up hiring folks as employees as opposed to contractors, you have to contend, you have to comply with those local regulations, right? And what do you do then? You know, what do you do in a situation where you're, you might be giving folks in the US two weeks of paid time off and and maybe no paid maternity leave, or maybe you have, you know, one month, you know, paid maternity leave. And then you go into a country like, um, like Poland, where you might end up as a new mother, you might have the right to take a year off for like fully paid maternity leave, right? And it's sort of guaranteed by law, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you deal with that? You know, like kind of like what decision do you make as a company? Is it all going to be the sort of the, the highest common denominator, right? Like we have to have the most generous policy so that it applies across the board, regardless of which country you happen to be in? Or are we going to have those differences between yeah. countries, right? Like in the US, in many places you have, uh, in most states you have at-will employment, right? Like if uh, an employee is not working out, you want to let them go, you can let them go. And today might be the last day of work, right? If you're in France, you should brace yourself for a multi-month termination process that might take many months to resolve. And you might have to pay out severance. You might have to, you know, give notice, like, all of those, like, this is really difficult, you know? Mm-hmm. And there is no, there's no one answer to this. It will be very much dependent on what your company culture is and like, what kind of policies do you want to put in place? And and are they going to be attractive to the employees that you're going to be bringing on board or, or not? Are you comfortable having different rules applied to employees in different countries? Or do you want to equalize them as much as possible? That's not an answer that we can... Mm-hmm give to our customers. It's not something that we can prescribe. This is the right way to do it, right? right. But we can help them navigate that. So that is a, a big one. And then there is obviously a, a, a huge bucket of things related to compliance. But those luckily you can, there are tools that help you with that, you know, like Pilot, you know, like some of our competitors, you can bring a tool into your, into your toolkit within the company and have someone else take care of that for you. But you can't, uh, sort of outsource defining your compensation policy as much, right. you know? Like it's it's something that you really need to take control of yourself. Right. Yeah. And, and all those topics you just touched on really speak to the, the compliance aspect of what Pilot helps with. So understanding okay. all those different policies and the implications that it has for, really for your, your global workforce. That thinking extends to our compliance as well, right? So it's not just... Like, because we're helping companies stay compliant, how do we make sure that the way that we operate is compliant as well, right? And this is where, you know, like you are with, with Currency Cloud and some of our other banking partners are a great example of that. How do we make sure that we're compliant with all of the money transmission laws within all of the countries out there that, that we exactly. operate in, right? And, you know, you and, and your team have, have been a, a great help in, in making sure that 
we're comfortable with our with our compliance status that and therefore our customers are comfortable that a company that's helping them with compliance is also compliant <laughs> themselves right yeah yeah right because there's there's employment compliance and then there's also the big aspect of your platform which is payroll so getting yeah. into that i mean payroll is important right i think for yeah. for everybody who works so contractors versus full-time employees whether they're take-home pay is the same, it will be a different experience for the company paying them and, and the, the method for paying them. So you guys are, are providing this opportunity for companies to hire full-time employees abroad. Those contracts could be denominated in a different currency. There's a lot going on when you start to hire these employees overseas. You know, Just from getting the money there on time into their bank account, yeah. that's, that's kind of step one. But that's table stakes, right? There's a whole aspect yeah. of understanding what it means to have foreign exchange, understanding, should I try to hedge this salary that I know I'm going to be paying every month so that the, the market doesn't move against my company? Can you just talk about that topic and, and what Pilot's doing in that finance aspect of it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's, that's another big topic that we could geek out on uh, for, the, for the whole duration of this, uh, of this chat. So... Yeah, as you've pointed out, like getting money to people on time is table stakes, but it's not easy, right? Yeah. Like you would think that, oh, this is a solved problem, but it's it's far from it, you know? Like, um, so so we try to make the experience of someone, whether they're hired as a contractor or as an employee, as similar as possible, right? So so within the product, we, we try to minimize the differences between how the employment functionality and the contracting functionality works. With contractors, you have a little, bit, a little bit of leeway normally because you know when when you're trying to get someone paid, there are no like government mandated or, or regulatory payment terms that you have to be content with, right? I mean, if if your payment arrives a couple of days late, like yes, it's 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 not the best experience for your contractor, but you're not necessarily breaking any laws, right? Like mm-hmm. you might have an overdue invoice that you know you're paying like three days late but you're not in violation of any local laws, right? Whereas missing payroll, Mm. (laughs) like employee payroll is a much more serious consequence, right? So we try to apply this type of mindset of like to to contractor payments as well, right? Where like we want to make sure that if your payday is the 25th of April, that you have money in your bank account by the 25th of April, right? Ideally, exactly the morning of, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, you all know that that is close to impossible to achieve on a global scale. Like we operate in 240 countries, right? And different payment rails, different payment timing, different reliability characteristics of all of those different payment methods that that, that we use, whether that's with Currency Cloud or some of our other banking partners. So we spend a lot of time basically optimizing transaction timing, you know, like really right. trying to understand when was this payment actually delivered and when was it sent and how does it relate to some of the other payments that we've made to the same bank, to the same country and the same currency? And how do we optimize this so that we can have as close to a hundred percent reliability and getting the payment exactly on the right date as is, is physically possible. And that's, you know, where there's, there's a few technologies that, that, that really come into, uh, come into play that, that help with that. One is uh, local payment routes, right? Like local payment methods, generally speaking, tend to be more reliable when it comes to payment timing compared to something like Swift because you cut out 
the intermediary banks, right? And mm-hmm. you sort of you have a more direct transfer between a local bank in country to to that employee. So that that you know being able to take advantage of those local routes have been a huge help. In some jurisdictions, that's not enough. Like the Brazil has um, a great local payment system, like TD, TF, PIX, like all of those are near real time payment methods. But there is a huge regulatory component to payments, especially cross-border transfers, especially above a certain uh, certain amount that you're paying, or there's uh, registrations with the central bank that are required that need to happen before the funds can be released to the individual. So we also help companies not have to think about that, you know. And you know, just because you're paying someone over, you know, say six thousand dollars in a particular calendar month, ideally their experience would be the same, right? Yep. So. Local payment routes is, is, is a great, that's, that's one, one great way in which we, we sort of help ensure that. Another one is, is Swift, Swift GPI, right? So like your audience is, is pretty savvy when it, when it comes to fintech, but you know, basically what that allows us to do is, is track those Swift payments in real time and understand whether they've been delivered to the bank or to the beneficiary or whether they you know, are stuck somewhere along the way, right? So that's another way in which we can get a much better idea for payment timing, because we get feedback, you know, from the system, how fast are those transfers actually getting processed? And then based on that feedback, we can adjust future payments to account for, for those sort of discrepancies in, in, in payment timing. So yeah, it's a fascinating, <laughs> like, I wish this was a solved problem, you know, like, I wish we could just focus on solving sort of like the HR issues, right? But there's still a lot of innovation left on the compliance side as well, oh, sorry, on the payment side as well. Yeah. Yeah. And all that goes into your payments. And we still didn't touch on foreign exchange and, and how companies need to build that into their timelines too, right? If you need this uh, GBP payment to land on X day, when does the conversion need to be booked for and, and all that stuff? So just a lot of complexity there. So it sounds like you guys are on top of it. I guess, you know, you, you mentioned that a, a couple of key things that you're integrating and that you look at integrating, you know, local payments, Swift GPI. I'm curious, you mentioned there's a few other platforms, you know, providing a similar service. Could you talk a little bit about, um, to the extent that you're comfortable talking about this, you know, how you're thinking about um, becoming the best in class platform? Is it paying attention to details like payment timing? Is it making sure that you have access to the most countries in the world? What, what are some of the, the criteria that you look at as this this space rapidly grows. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So one thing to mention is that the majority of the time we really compete with a bunch of different things getting, you know, being stuck together with duct tape. You know, the majority of companies that that we onboard don't have an existing solution in place, right? And they're really struggling with with managing international payments. Some of them might be using a sort of the uh, you know, tools like TransferWise, for example, or Zoom, or, you know, there's, there's a bunch of other sort of payment related tools that you can use, uh, but those don't handle any of that sort of employment or compliance or HR piece at all, right? So whatever solution they pick, whether it's us or whether it's one of our competitors, it's already going to be like 10 times better than what, they, what they're using today, you know, like the majority of the time. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to you know, some of the other players that we're working with, with within our market, some of it boils down to philosophy around, you know, how the product is structured, like, you know, how easy it is to use, what kind of functionality does it have? Uh, some, of, some of it boils down to 
compliance, right? Yes. And 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 how how well are we doing in operating in this, in this sort of regulated work world and, and making sure that funds are secured and, and insured in transit and, and things like that. And then ultimately, is it, you know, is this the right tool for your company, right? So there is, you know, we have competitors that we frequently recommend to our customers because we focus on a very specific type of customer very with very specific needs. And sometimes we talk to folks whose needs are better met by our competitors and mm-hmm. we're happy to to refer business to them. You know, it's payroll is is such it's a very interesting market because you know you can look at the sort of the US where you know you have startups, you know, like Gusto and Rippling with billion dollar valuations, and they are a tiny fraction of the market, you know? Like it's like single digit percentage points with these huge platforms. ADP, who's the biggest player in in the US payroll market, has I think 12% market share, you know? So like there's plenty of room for right. for companies like like ours and all of the other players in this space to innovate in different directions and then have companies have the choice. Like what is it that you need and which platform is the best fit for you, right? Yep. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. I, I mean, I had no idea that the ADP only had a 12% market share. And I can imagine, you know, just depending on what the company needs, there's there's somebody out there for them. So just in general, as we look to wrap up the conversation, I'd be curious if you could share, you know, trends that you're seeing. I like to ask our guests, you know, what do you see coming in the future? But, you know, anything that you're seeing that that you expect to continue, any trend lines you expect to to change? Can you just give us a, a forward-looking view? Yeah. So, I mean, this is not going to be controversial, but I think remote work is here to stay, you know, but it's not going to be universal, right? So, so I think what you're going to see is after this year-long experiment, there's going to be a very large percentage of companies, maybe half, maybe more, that realize that they don't need real estate, they don't need offices, and they can hire people wherever they want because they've been doing that for the past year and it's worked out really well for them, you know? And then there is going to be companies that reach the opposite conclusion, you know? And they say, we might have some relaxation in terms of, you know, allowing people to work from home, uh, but maybe it will be, you know, one day a week, maybe it will be two days a week, and maybe it will still be restricted to mostly the country that the company is based in, right? I don't think we're going to see this sort of like revolution where suddenly every single company is remote, Mm -hmm. but it's certainly going to be a perfectly acceptable way to run a company. And that really hasn't been the case pre-pandemic. I mean, it's been changing, but even a few years ago, if, you know, say you were raising money in Silicon Valley and and your team were remote, you were an outlier, you know, Mm -hmm. like that was a red flag for investors, you know, whether, whether whether to put money into your company or not. That's gone, you know, like, and and I don't think there's, there's no putting that back, you know, there's going to be uh, new companies getting started that are distributed and it's going to be a very significant percentage of new companies getting started. I don't think I would say that every single company getting started today should be remote, even every single like technology startup. I'm less of a sort of an absolutionist when it comes to this. There is some folks out there that would tell you that, you know, Every company should be 100% distributed, have team members in 80 different countries and, and, and hire anyone in the world. And we want to enable that, right? So we want companies that choose to do that to 
have a much easier time managing that, right? And I think that's going to be an increasingly higher number of companies that end up making that choice, right? But it is a very important choice that has consequences, right? You have to set up your company in the right way. And it's sort of like an all or nothing preposition. Like you either are a remote company or you're not, you know, because... I think what we're going to see is companies experimenting with hybrid, where they have some folks in the office and some folks working remotely. And I think that will fail pretty spectacularly. Like I think every company that's trying to straddle this and say, well, we have an office and most of the time you have to come in, but we have some folks that are remote. Those companies are going to struggle the most because you need infrastructure. You need to set up your company in a way where you can't have a situation where like, there's some information that's only available to you if you're physically in the office and some isn't, right? Because then you end up having two classes of workers within the company, some that are privy to the sort of things that are happening in the office, the chatter, the, the sort of relationship building, and some that aren't. And that's not a recipe for a good and healthy company. Yeah. So I think we've all been on a meeting where we're sitting on Zoom and there's you know five or six people in a conference room uh, and I don't know if there's a worse experience out there. So that it's I, terrible. Yeah. I can echo that sentiment. Yeah. So I, I guess you know. Also looking at at the pandemic, you know, what do you see coming out of that as as the pandemic hopefully winds down in the states? I know in some other countries it it might have another wave or two to go. But what do you see? You know, this boom in remote work I think was really tied to the pandemic over the last year. I'm curious what, what you're seeing there, if that will continue or, or some trends will change. So I think there is going to be some change in, in terms of, as I said, I don't think every company that was remote or has been remote for the past year will continue being remote, right? So I think tools that everyone needed to put in place are going to see a decrease in usage valuation, you know, whatever, whatever this is. So like, Zoom has been doing remarkably well, right? And it is definitely there to stay. But I think there is going to be less need for some of those tools as some companies decide to go back to the office, right? Mm-hmm. So all of the things that we're trying to do to like sort of recreate that office experience, if you're moving back in, you might not need it anymore, right? So I think the tools that we de- that people desperately needed to put in place when like lockdowns hit, right? They've seen a huge boost, but I think they're also going to see maybe not a decline, but I think the the growth will certainly slow. And I think there is going to be a bit of a dip in terms of, you know, some of those customers churning or deciding that they don't need that tool anymore when when they're back in the office, right? Mm -hmm. I think we as as sort of, you know, payroll and and sort of HR operation, uh, you know, providers are in a more fortunate position in that it's a slower moving space, and I don't mean in the sense of the innovation that's happening in the space. I mean, it's not like on March 16th, suddenly every single company in America had need, had a need for global payroll, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's not what happened, right? They had a need for Zoom and maybe for Slack, but global payroll is really a consequence of a, of a decision that a company makes to be remote, right? And to yep. be truly like remote. And those decisions, I don't think are going to get wound back. You know, like I don't think you would have made the decision, okay, it's the pandemic. So now we're going to be hiring all over the world. But then coming out of it, now we're just going to be focused on the, like that doesn't make sense, right? Right. So so I think we're in a position where 
we didn't see as much of an immediate boost in in March because it wasn't a sharp change that needed to get addressed. Yep. But it was an excuse for a lot of companies to start thinking about hiring globally. So we're seeing a very steady, very fast, but very steady growth. And I think that's going to continue post-pandemic. Yeah, I mean, it makes a ton of sense. And, and you guys seem to be in a rapidly growing market. And I, I think things are, are looking up for pilot and the space in general. So Matt, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? At least let them know how to find you, how to reach out to you and pilot. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think the one thing that I that I like folks to think about is, you know, if you're already hiring people across borders, you're already doing great. Like whether you're using a tool like Pilot or not, like I just really appreciate that you've taken that step in helping make this world more open place, you know, and and help sort of, you know, remove those borders between countries that that we've artificially erected over the past uh, millennia, <laughs> you know? So kudos to you. You're doing great. If you do need help and there are things that are not working about your current process, you know, we're happy to help. You can reach out to me personally. My email is just matt at pilot.co. That's matt at pilot.co. And I'm more than happy to help you navigate this. We help folks that I just, I just like to help people and, and we're happy to do that even if you're not a fit for us. So even if like your company is not based in the US, which means that by definition, we can't, we can't support you. I'm happy to point you in the right direction or just, just you know, yeah. Feel free to send in any questions that you have uh, directly to me. We'd be happy to help out. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Matt. Awesome. Thanks, Brady. It was a pleasure. Currency Cloud is an online payments company that makes international money transfers fast and simple for businesses. We're building a borderless future where international transactions are seamless for a better user experience. Discover the world's most trusted payment platform and our toolkit of developer-friendly APIs at currencycloud.com. You've been listening to the Payments Innovation Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe now in iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Until next time.